As we go through the book of Ruth, we see how God uses some very unlikely people. And we're going to focus on that today, and I thought I might start by relaying uh, what someone wrote about a church receiving various candidates for the ministry. They had an open pastor position, and uh, they received different characters from the Bible. And they, this person imagined the uh, selection committee receiving and the recommendations of each one and then passing that on. Anyway, this is what they wrote as they examined the different people that were in the Bible and how they might possibly be used or not. And in particular, why most of them were disqualified. Uh, Noah, former pastor of 120 years with not even a convert, one convert, prone to unrealistic building projects. Uh, Joseph, big thinker but a braggart, believes in dream interpreting, has a prison record. Moses, a modest and meek man but a poor communicator, even stuttering at times. Sometimes blows the stacks and acts rashly. Some say he left an earlier church over a murder charge. David, the most promising leader of all until we discovered the affair he had with his neighbor's wife. Solomon, great parsonage, or a great preacher, but our parsonage could never hold all those wives. Elijah, prone to depression, collapses under pressure. Hosea, tender and loving pastor, um, but our people could never handle his wife's occupation. Deborah, strong leader, seems to be anointed. She's a female. A Jeremiah, emotionally unstable, alarmist, negative, always lamenting things, reported to taking a long trip uh, to bury his underwear on the bank of a foreign river. Jonah, refused God's call in the ministry until he was forced to obey by getting swallowed up by a great fish. He told us the fish later spit him, out, spit him up on the shore near here. We hung up. Amos, too backward, unpolished. With some seminary training, he might have promised, but he has a hang-up against wealthy people. Might fit better in a poor congregation. Melchizedek, great credentials at current workplace, but where does this guy come from? No information on his resume about former work records. Every line about his parents is blank, and he refuses to even give us a birth date. John, says he's a Baptist, definitely doesn't dress like one. Has slept in the outdoors for months on end, has a weird diet, and provokes denominational leaders. Peter, too blue-collar. Bad temper, even known to curse. Big run-in with Paul in Antioch. Aggressive, a loose cannon, this guy. Paul, powerful CEO type, fascinating preacher. However, pretty short on tact, unforgiving with younger ministers, harsh, and has even been known to preach all night. James and John, package deal, preacher and associate, seemed good at first, but found out they have an ego problem regarding other fellow workers and the seating positions. They once threatened the entire town over an insult. Timothy, too young. Methuselah, too old, way too old. Jesus, has had popular times, once, but once his church grew to 5,000, he managed to offend them all. And then his church dwindled down to about 12 people. Seldom stays in one place very long, and of course, he's single. Judas. Well, here's something else, though. His references are solid, steady, plotter, conservative, good connections, knows how to handle money. We're inviting him to preach this Sunday. Possibilities here. When uh, I look at the story of Ruth, I see the beauty of what God does, the hidden glory that one of those songs talked about, because we see God working in a way that no one could have perceived with natural eyesight or understanding at that time. 
We see God working not through the miraculous and the powerful, seemingly, through the small and the insignificant. And we see him working, especially through a woman who is not only ordinary, but she had at least three strikes against her. We'll come back to that. But I want us to begin by reviewing chapter 1, because this is, again, sets the stage. Some of, some of us weren't here. Many of us more probably be good to have this refresher. Uh, in chapter 1, Naomi is married to a guy named Elimelech. Again, his name means God is king, which is really forming the background question to this. How can God be king when, in this time, the time of the judges, everything, everything is going wrong? The nation itself, God's people, are going down this downward cycle of evil and reaping the results of that. She marries this man, Elimelech. They have two sons. There's a famine in the land. They go to live in Moab. Elimelech dies. That's not a good omen when the guy whose name is the Lord is king or God is king dies in the first uh, couple of verses of the book, right? Fortunately, they have two sons, Malon and Chilion. They marry these nice Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And yet, those, the text says that they're married 10 years. There are no children that issue from these two unions. Finally, Naomi hears that the famine in the land has ceased. For whatever reason, she decides to make her way back. She talks to her daughters there on the, on the plains of the Jordan, the boundary line between Israel and Moab, and says, go back. Uh, you have no future with me. Go back to your own people, your own family. Maybe find a, another husband to take the place. And may God rich you, bless you. And, and Orpah does. Orpah works just what we would think in our, her normal self-interest. It wasn't this evil, bad decision. It was common sense. But Ruth, Ruth clings to Naomi there on the plains of the, of the Jordan and says, no. Do not urge me to go away, because I'm not going. Where you go, I go. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. And where you're buried, that's where I'm going to be buried. And she goes back. So they head back to Bethlehem, the city of bread, which those previous 10 years had not lived up to its name, just as the barley has started. And again, we talked about this, that you're not going to see any miracles in this story. You see a famine come and go. Maybe that could be a miracle, but those things happen ordinarily. You're not going to see any miracles in this story. In fact, you're not going to see God really speak in the story. You'll see God spoken about in some addresses. God seems to be absent, but he's very, very present, isn't he? There are only three times, really, where you have seasons of miracles in biblical history. Of course, you know, you have miracles whenever God wants to do them. But the, the seasons where he brings a lot of miracles and signs and wonders are these very specific transition points. And, uh, and Ruth, like most of the narratives, most of the people who lived in that time and today is not in one of those seasons of miracles and signs. All right, last we mentioned this before. Naomi means pleasant. <clears throat> Uh, Mara means bitter, so she, when he comes back to, to Bethlehem, and the women gather around, is this Naomi? She says, no. You know what? That's not my name anymore. That's not my name because the Lord has made my life bitter. Four times she has some variation of the, 
of the phrase that God's hand is against her and he's made her better and he, she, is, she went away full, but now she is empty. Four times she says that because that's what it looked like to her. And then finally, we talked about how when we read these stories, we should see three different levels. On one level, this is a story of how God brings Naomi. She's the one at the beginning and the end. She forms the narrative arc. How he brings her from emptiness to fullness, from bitterness to back to pleasantness by the sacrificial work of, of Ruth. All right, so one story, it's the story of, of Naomi and Ruth. And it may be a story like ours, where we want to see God working to bring good into our life, but we don't see it. The second way, though, that the story works, just like really all the stories of the Old Testament, is that this is also a story of how God works in Israel. And in this case, how he brings it from the emptiness of the time of the judges when there was evil, and it bookends saying, and every man did what was right in his own eyes because there was no king to the time of the glorious kingship of David and Solomon. This, so it begins referencing the book of Judges, the very first verse of Ruth, chapter 1, and at the end you have a reference to David, the great king, because this is how God brings the nation from emptiness to fullness. And again, he does this through this woman, because these levels are intertwined. And then finally, we know, probably many of us, that because she is a great-grandmother of David, she is also going to be in the line of Jesus himself. So this is also a story of a larger level of how God brings this woman to, from emptiness to fullness, how through that he helps the nation move from emptiness to fullness, and that through that redeems the whole cosmic world, bringing them from emptiness and sin and strife to the fullness of the coming kingdom. It's not there yet. We're in the middle of that process. But this fits in with that whole thing. All these levels are intermeshed. This is not just a love story in the normal sense of the word. It's a love story in a more full sense of this word than we can understand normally. All right, and then lastly, we, we talked about several things we're going to see here. God is always at work even when it looks like he's absent. He's always working for us, even when it looks like, as Naomi said, he's working against us. God's work intertwines all three levels. God, God's work is always beyond what we see and understand. God uses ordinary people to do his work. God uses the ordinary actions of his people to do his work, but especially those of love and sacrifice. The great turning point of this chapter, the one that sets everything else in motion, is Ruth on the plains of Moab, clinging to Naomi's neck, looking at her, Ruth's own future as emptiness, but giving up herself out of love and sacrifice to Naomi. That's what God especially uses. And God uses people in ways they will not see or understand. I'm assuming Ruth probably saw her children, of course, and his grandchildren. She never saw David. She never saw Solomon. She never saw the temple. She never saw the cross. She never saw the, the coming kingdom of God. And that she was part of it. Now, as we go into chapter 2, we're going to especially focus on one part of that. And that's this. That God uses ordinary people to do his work. And that's why I began with that introduction. Of how God used all these people in spite 
of the fact that each one had strikes against them, had disqualifications, had things that we'd say, man, I don't think I can use that guy. I don't think that guy can use that woman. And the reason it's so important, we're going to have that too, right? We have things in our life we know or we think disqualify God from using us. It may be something we've done or failed to do. It might be some character trait that we have that we can't get rid of. It might be some lack of ability or talent. And we see someone else, you know, we, we've got a thimble full of that gift or talent, and they've got, you know, they've got a wheelbarrow full of it. It might be the fact of just our, our status in our society, our gender, our background, our, our wealth, our career, success or lack thereof, our age. And that's why we need this reminder from Ruth chapter 2. All right, so let's get into the text. And uh, Abby says such a beautiful prayer there that we're going to go forward in this uh, and, uh, and look at what God wants to teach us here. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. All right, so Ruth chapter 2. Go ahead and find this with me in your scriptures. It's not going to be on the on the board there. So Ruth chapter 2. Fittingly, it's also in the Bibles right between Judges and the book of 1 Samuel where God brings David into prominence, right? So not only chronologically but canonically, it's, it's in the right place of the transition, right? So Ruth chapter 2, with that background of chapter 1, it says this. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. So a clan would be something in between the, a nuclear family and a tribe. It would be basically probably the 50 to maybe 100 people who formed your first, maybe second cousins and whatnot. And, uh, and Naomi thought she was empty, but she did have this woman. And when she gets back to Israel, she's reminded, going to be reminded in this chapter, she also had a cousin who was a man of standing. As you can see later on, he's a man of position, a little bit in the city at least. He's a man of wealth, a little bit at least. He owns different fields. He has servants. And Ruth, the Moabitess. Now, I want you to notice, by the way, how many times in this chapter she's called the Moabitess. Or the emphasis comes from Moab. We already know that. I mean, chapter one's clear on that. And, and this guy who writes Ruth, or whoever wrote Ruth, is a master of economy. I mean, this is a beautiful short story where every word and phrase is chosen. So there's a reason this is going to be emphasized. So Ruth the Moabitess, doesn't just say Ruth, we know who's, where she's from. Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. And Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. Digression here. Okay, what's going on with gleaning? It's going to be mentioned, um, I think, a dozen times in this chapter. So it'd be good for us to get a handle on this. We probably have some idea. So in those times, of course, they didn't have uh, multi or John Deere tractors costing hundreds of thousands of dollars to work their field. They had people. And so the normal progress or the normal procedure of this, the men would go out and they would grab the the stalk of the barley or the wheat with one hand and they take a sift and cut it down with the other and then they would drop it. All right, this increased their efficiency. They have to pick it up, carry it. They drop it 
And then the women's servant would come behind and they would pick all this up and bundle it up. These would be the sheaves that would be brought together. Now, gleaning was a practice that God had actually given to his people, commanded of his people in the Old Testament. In fact, he told the, those who owned land not to harvest all the way to the edges of your field, leave some of it unharvested. And then once you go over a place and, you, and you've harvested that, don't go back over it a second time to pick up what was missed by either the men or the women. Why? Because he says, I want to give a way for those who are poor, who have no land and no job and no property to be able to come. I want them to have the dignity of work, but I also want them to have a way to meet their, their needs. That was gleaning. So a gleaner would come behind uh, after these people and they would pick up whatever was dropped, whatever was left. And it was God's way of providing for his people. So that's what she wants to do. She goes behind the harvesters. And I love how the understatement of this in chapter uh, 2, verse 3, as it turned out, as it just so happened, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who is from the tribe or the clan of Elimelech. Now, she doesn't know Boaz. This wasn't her subterfuge doing this. Uh, she, she, you know, she's going to tell later on to Naomi, oh, there was this guy. Naomi says, wait, Boaz, I know him. He's one of our relatives. So this isn't Ruth's doing. Whose doing is it? Whose work is it? Whose plan is it that she just happens to end up in the fields of the one man who could play the key part in redeeming not only her own life and Naomi's life, but also the nation through that. God is always at work. It's a hidden glory. It's a hidden work. He is not always, he's not very often going to work through miracles and dramatic signs. Sometimes he gives us these incredible answers to prayer. Sometimes he gives Great, great, wonderful healing to his people. I remember going up every night to Methodist Hospital for almost a month when a guy in our youth group named Drew Cat, some of you, some of us old timers might remember him, had that accident when he was 17. And, and uh, I was there when the doctor told his mother he's probably not going to make it because he had significant brain injury if he does. He will, have, he will not be able to function very well. I was in the room when they told his mother that. But I also saw God's people being praying and praying. And weeks later, he came out of that coma, graduated that, that year, and went to Vanderbilt University and graduated. I've seen God answer prayers of healing that could not be explained. But I've also prayed a lot of prayers and been with a lot of prayers where God didn't answer. Because God's not bound to do the things the way that we interpret them, and, and he uses all things for his glory. There's a hiddenness to God's ways. You see it here. You see it so often in the scriptures. So she ends up in the fields of Boaz. And verse 4, just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you, and the Lord bless you, they called back. It's good to see, even in the, in the time of the judges, there are a few people who Call upon the name of the Lord. And uh, he asked, hey, um, see that young woman over there? Yeah, who does she belong to? And, and again, that's just a normal way. Who's she attached to? Probably a husband is what she was thinking. And the foreman replied, oh, 
Well, she's the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. Again, that emphasis. Moabitess who came back from Moab. Well, of course she came back from Moab. Where else would a Moabitess come from? But again, it's, it's an emphasis here. And she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. And she went into the field and has worked steadily from morning until now, except for a short rest in the shelter. And so Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go away and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I've told the men not to touch you. And whenever you're thirsty, go get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. Now, this is actually uh, an unusual thing that he would show this kindness to her. And she gets it. Here is a man standing in power, showing kindness to this young foreigner. And she says, verse 10, at this, she bowed down with her face to her ground. And she exclaimed, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Again, that aspect of her existence emphasized again. Boaz replied, well, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and your mother and your home and you came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. By the way, keep that image in your mind where he prays that she would find refuge under God's wings. Because in chapter 3, he's going to be the answer to his own prayers. We'll get there next week, though. Uh, verse 13. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. You have given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I do not even have the standing of one of your servant girls. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread, dip it in the wine vinegar. And when she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain, and she ate all she wanted. She had some left over. And as she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Even if she gathers among the sheaves, in other words, the stacks of the women, don't embarrass her. You know, she's new. She probably doesn't know the rules here. Rather, pull out some stalks from her on purpose, basically, from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. I love that. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening, and then she threshed the barley she had gathered. She separated the barley from the, from the chaff and it mounted to about an ephah. Aren't you glad when, you, when you're able to glean in the field and you get a whole ephah? I mean... In ephah, what in the world does that mean? Well, it means about three-fifths of a, of a bushel or almost 30 pounds of grain. We're told from other sources in the Near East that a gleaner could normally expect to gather between one and two pounds of grain. God is indeed richly blessing her. She carried it back to town, and when her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered, uh, Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. And her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one whose place she had been working. Oh, this nice man named Boaz. There's a light in Naomi's eyes. Boaz. The Lord bless him. He has not stopped. I believe she's referring to God as he. God does not stop showing his kindness to the living, her, and the dead, her husband, Elimelech. That man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen 
redeemers. First words of praise out of Naomi's mouth. Four times she says, God's hand has turned against me, but now she's seeing something here that is unusual. She says, the Lord bless him. We'll come back to this idea of redemption here. Let's finish the story. Then Ruth, the Moabitess, <laughs> said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they're finished harvesting my grain. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls because in someone else's field you might be harmed. Again, a reminder of what kind of times they lived in. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Interesting development in the story here. She goes to these fields, and she ends up in a field of a man who is going to be a relative of hers. And Naomi says she could be our kinsman redeemer or guardian redeemer, some of your translations might say. Now, all right, what, what is meant by that? Well, let's think, first of all, this word redemption. We see it in the Bible. What does it mean? It basically means three things that are occurring together. One, to redeem someone or something, but it's usually a person. To redeem someone means to set them free from their captivity. And uh, usually this is going to be someone who was either in, uh, in bondage, so a kind of indentured servanthood because of their debts, or because they were a prisoner of war. So if we go out here and, you know, and we have a war against a foreign country and we're defeated, or at least our, that battle we're defeated, and uh, they gather, you know, a couple thousand prisoners of war, what are they going to do? Well, they're not going to do like we did in the 20th century, set up these large concentration camps and feed these people for years on end. No, they're not going to do that. They're not going to kill people either. No, there's more value in making that person a slave. So if you're battling Syria, if you're in Israel and you're battling Syria and you were captured, you were brought to the land of Syria as a slave to somebody. Now, to be redeemed then, the first thing would be you would be released from that bondage. And then the second thing, you would then be restored because you've been released and you're not, you're not free to be restored back to your family. So maybe you'd be restored to your wife and children, or, or if you were younger, to your mother and your father and your parents' household. You'd be restored to your village. You'd be restored to your clan and your people. And the third aspect of redemption would be the ransom price. There's always a price for redemption. And it was called a ransom. So we ever heard of a king's ransom? That's what, how much you'd have to pay to redeem a, a king, which did happen in history. Um, a ransom price. So those three aspects, there is someone in slavery. There is someone who is separated from where they should have been. They're not living the kind of life that they were created to live. And there is someone else who is willing to pay a price to redeem them. By the way, that's us. Ruth is going to be used as a tool of God's redemption, but before that happens, she also will need to be redeemed. God wants to use you and I as tools of his redemption. But first, we have to be redeemed. Because the scriptures say over and over again that we have been enslaved by our own sins. We have been enslaved into some sort of invisible to us servitude, a bondage to the evil one. 
our sins have created this. And, uh, and the scriptures talk about this is just one of several places. But I, I love especially the way 1 Peter describes, it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold. Wait, aren't those valuable? Yeah, they are, but they're perishable. You know what's more, much more valuable than that? The precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's what's redeemed you. And you have to accept that redemption. Just as I imagine a slave had a choice. I mean, if they really wanted to, I suppose they could stay a slave. It's not something God's going to force upon you. But he has paid the ransom price of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what the cross is for. And if you don't know yet that you've been redeemed, ransomed in this way, oh, I beg you to talk to me or Nate or someone here who can show you how to do that, how to respond to God's offer of this salvation. So this is the redemption. Now, in Ruth's and Naomi's case, what is going to be redeemed is twofold. There's a plot of land, but there's also Naomi and Ruth herself. These two, two, two things in this context are going to be tied together. In, uh, in the ancient world, well, in Israel at least, God didn't want the land to go away from the family forever. So he provided different ways. He provided the day of Jubilee when all lands would be returned and all debts canceled. That's 49 years between years of Jubilee. That's a long time. So people could be redeemed. Land could be redeemed. And in this case, Elimelech's land, which was part of his inheritance as a people, had been lost. I don't know if they sold it off before they went to Moab, probably, or something else, but she doesn't have it. It has to be redeemed in some way. And, and that's what this, this kinsman can do if he is willing and if he's able to pay the price. Boaz is going to be both. Now, we'll come back to that next chapter. But as we kind of wind this down, I want us to, to remember one thing about this here. One thing that's really at the heart of this chapter, that God uses ordinary people for extraordinary things. Ruth. Ruth is the key element in the story. Naomi is the one who receives the blessing from, from uh, emptiness to fullness, and Israel through her. But it's through the actions of Ruth, and then later on, Boaz. But Ruth initiates this. Think about this woman. She, she's young in a culture that honors age, so it's almost the opposite of ours. We may be old in a culture that, that emphasizes and honors youth. So it's a flip side of the same thing, though, right? She's a woman in a male-dominated culture. She is a poor person, a poor woman in a culture that values wealth and success. And most of all, as the text again emphasizes, she is a foreigner. She is a woman from a land that is not always a friendly neighbor of Israel. This wasn't like the United States and Canada. This is more like England and France through most of the Middle Ages, you know, periods of peace, but oftentimes where they're at each other's throat. That's Moab in Israel, and she's from the wrong side of the tracks, or in this case, the wrong side of the Jordan. That's who she is. She's got three, four strikes against her, and they're pretty good strikes. And this is the one God uses. God does not want your ability and your power and your excessive talent and and your position and your wealth and success, if he grants that to us, that is great. That is his 
gift. We should honor him and thank him and seek to use that, but never feel like God has to grant those things to us in order to be used. Ruth had none of that. And God used her and her decision to shape human history for the good. And he will do the same. We have no idea how our present decisions, even small and significant ones, made in spite of our lack, the strikes against us, God will use, as he did with Ruth. In fact, um, my wife showed me this picture online that someone had made of a greeting card, or a Christmas card, rather. And I think they're also prints. You can buy these online. Um, email me, and I'll send you the link if you're really interested. But this woman who created this, uh, this little painting, she was thinking of the four women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ recorded in Matthew chapter 1. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I love reading the genealogies of the scripture, right? I mean, those first 12 chapters of, of Second Chron or First Chronicles, man, that's, that's riveting stuff. There's actually a lot that we see if we study, though. I mean, they're not fun reading. I'll, I'll grant that. But one of the things you're going to notice again and again and again is it's, it's the men. Because this is a male-dominated culture, just like every culture back then. It's the men who are going to be included in these genealogies. In the book of Matthew, there are 42 uh, male names, including this genealogy of Jesus. And there are four women. Interesting that the women are included at all, but even more fascinating is what women they are. Who are they? This is Tamar. You'll read her story in, I think, Genesis 37. It's an ugly story. It's a story of sex scandals, of lies, and uh, prostitution. And, and yet, Scripture not only makes her in the line of Christ, it emphasizes this fact. This is uh, Rahab. Remember her from early chapters of Joshua? Book of Hebrews tells us she was a prostitute. And there she is holding that red cord that she hung down the window, window out of faith that this people were the people of God. And I want to be a part of that if, in any way that I can. This is Ruth. There she's got her, her grain there with her. The foreigner. She lives a virtuous life, unlike some of the others in, in this. But again, she's a foreigner. She's a poor woman. She's a widower of, of a Moabite. And then this is Bathsheba. Some of you might know the name. The woman who was the wife of a foreigner, uh, Uriah the Hittite, but also who was involved in the affair uh, of David. I'm not exactly sure how much choice she had in that, so I'm not really going to blame her. I mean, David was a very, very powerful man in a very male-dominated culture. But in any case, it, this wasn't the way things were supposed to be. And yet God chose each one of these women and said, I'm not only going to put them in the line of Christ, when I write down the gospel about the genealogy of this one who I send as the Savior of the world, I'm going to include four women, and these are them. God loves using ordinary people, even people that seem to have all the strikes against them. Even people who have gotten it wrong, who have made mistakes like many of them did, who are from the wrong side of the tracks in every sense of the word, God uses people like that. He will use you and I. He will especially use our acts of sacrifice in love and faithfulness, as he did with Ruth. This is the story. 
This is a love story between, yes, these two figures, Ruth and Boaz. We'll come back to that. But more than that, deeper than that, higher than that, this is a story of God's work through people to redeem the world, and that includes people like us. I don't know where God's calling you to be faithful, to be sacrificial, to serve, but I do know this. Every page of this book tells me that God is not absent, and God is not unaware of what we do for him. Rather, the smallest things that we do out of faith for God and service to other people, he uses he plants it as a seed, and out of that, who knows, in the coming generations and generations, what kind of forest will come out of that? This is who God is. It doesn't matter if we're all that or not. Ruth wasn't. What matters is whether he is. And he is. He is the hero of the story. He is all that. He is the one that takes our lowly gifts that we can offer, makes them something beautiful. I want to end with uh, this story. And I've mentioned this before. First time I put a picture up here, though. Um, anybody know who this is? I'll be pretty impressed. Where are my notes? This is Nikolai Paganini. And uh, if you don't know the name of Nikolai Paganini, you're not a violinist. Because he is thought to be the greatest violinist in the history of of that musical art. He swept through Europe in the 1800s, and his fame was something like Beatlemania of the time. His skills were so great that people thought he must have made a pact with the devil. In fact, there were rumors to that effect, to, to get that kind of skill. He was a striking man. Hollow cheeks, pale skin, thin lips. He was tall and thin, often dressed in black. He also had very, very long, thin fingers. And uh, he memorized music. He didn't read it from a, a script as people normally did, or from a sheet. And uh, he flailed about on stage. People called him the rubber man. He could play 12 notes a second, and his fingers could span three octaves. By the way, it's now believed that his unusual finger length uh, was probably due to Marfan syndrome, a genetic disorder, and his ability to play at incredible speed could be attributed to Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Uh, which creates increased flexibility and, um, and coordination. Anyway, it's said that one evening Paganini was performing before a packed house. As he embarked on his final piece, one of the strings of the violin snapped. Undeterred, Paganini kept playing. A few moments later, a second string snapped. Again, Paganini kept playing. Now reduced to playing a classical masterpiece on just two strings. And then the unbelievable, a third string snapped. Yet he kept going, finishing the piece on just one string. And so brilliant was the performance that the crowd rose to their feet to give him a standing ovation. Yet he was not finished. There was an encore to come. He was quite the showman. So raising the violin above his head, he called to the audience, Paganini and one string. And with that, the orchestra struck up, and Peggy Dini completed the encore with one string. Now, here's where I'm going with this. He had great gifts and power and ability. We are not Peggy Nini in the story. We're the violin with one string. 
And if a man like Paganini can make a beautiful masterpiece out of a violin with one string, can you imagine what Paganini's maker could do with us? Can you imagine how the God who creates all things, simple by his word, can do in spite of our limitations?